This is CT Startup, your source for information on entrepreneurs, investors, and resources in the Connecticut startup ecosystem. From university campuses to industrial labs, from Stanford to Hartford, and from Danbury to Norwich, if it's happening out there in Connecticut, you'll find it in here. Now it's time to enter into a world of innovation, a world of human struggles, heartbreak, and achievement. And most of all, a world of wonder. Welcome to CT Startup. All right. Welcome, everybody. This is another episode of uh, CT Startup. I'm one of your hosts, Eric Francis from Trifecta Ecosystems. Chris DeMauro from Sublime Exposure Online. And today we are here with David Corris, uh, Deputy Commissioner of the DECD. How are you doing, David? Great. Thanks. Great to be here. All right. So uh, g- give a little insight on uh, what does a Deputy Commissioner do? You know, what's your role? How did you get there? Um, and then uh, we'll kind of jump into kind of some of the entrepreneurial projects you've been involved with. Great. Yeah. So the way that the department set up uh, economic and community development in the state, we basically kind of have two sides of the house. We've got the folks that focus more on business development, that are assisting companies as they grow or relocate to the state, making sure that we're growing a range of diverse employment opportunities for our residents. And then there's my side of the house, which is more infrastructure and what I consider to be sort of Mm place-based. It's about investing in communities, investing in properties so that they're best prepared for private Uh, further private investment. So that could be anything from sewer and water to road improvements to um, attractions that uh, underpin tourism and visitation to the state. And, you know, I got into this through urban planning. Mm -hmm. Uh, My background is in planning. I was the planning and development director for the city of Bridgeport for several years. Um, So I've got a bit of experience at local government, understand sort of the challenges that our cities and towns face, but also the significant opportunities And before that, I worked at an organization called Regional Plan Association, where I was vice president and Connecticut director, which was helping communities across the New York metropolitan region be more prosperous while also kind of enhancing social equity and environmental sustainability. Uh, So let me ask you this. How how did you end up at the DECD and... um what made you decide to make that hour and a half commute from Stanford to Harvard every day? <laughs> I still can't believe <laughs> I'm not going to be able to get over this for a minute. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, our state's really interesting, right? I mean, it's simultaneously small and compact, which makes it a really interesting place to work. And you can kind of get to know people pretty relatively easily. But it does take a couple hours to get from from corner to corner. You know, I always say that that I have a bit of a higher tolerance than than many to kind of stitch together the neighborhoods that make our community of our state so great. But I think, you know, that that's got to be one of our biggest um, opportunities and challenges is, you know, government, Governor Malloy has said this in the past, you know, the greatest city in the world stretches from the banks of the Potomac to the shores of the Charles. And some of its most vibrant neighborhoods are New York City and Boston and Center City, Philadelphia. And we, by networking together downtown Meriden and New Haven and Stamford and Hartford, we can stitch together our assets so that they function as neighborhoods of something larger. And what I always say is, you know, that's the life that I live, right? I'm in New Haven right now. I'll be in Groton this afternoon. I'll go to sleep in Stanford. Yesterday, I was in Bridgeport and Hartford and Waterbury. And I can see how you can create that critical mass by networking together the complementary assets that our communities represent, but very few people have the tolerance that I do (laughs) to kind of overcome our infrastructure hurdles to make that work, which is why, you know, 
the, the Hartford Rail Line that we recently opened up in June or Fast Track, which opened a few years ago now, those investments are so important because those are the types of transportation alternatives that will incrementally get us to the point where it'll ultimately feel no different to take a rail line from New Haven to uh, you know Newington than it currently does to stand on the subway from Bushwick to the East Village. That was a great answer. That you just you just killed that one. <laughs> that was wow, wow. I might have talked about that stuff. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right, like that was. But so so I guess on that on that kind of idea is that I mean it, it seems like you have like the Connecticut you know view, not mm-hmm. the individual fiefdom view right. that all these cities have. I mean. Being a part of some of the groups of Innovation Places, which is came out of DCD, which is kind of placemaking. That, well, it's supposed Absolutely. to be placemaking, yep. for sure. Um, it, it's We still ran into the fiefdom nature of Connecticut. I mean, we have 169 different towns. They all try to kind of compete. Um, and especially with the cities, right? We do. I mean, I, I remember one um, one fact that came out that was like, uh, there's more people in the New York City, uh, uh, more people hired by the New York City than live in Bridgeport. Yep. So, so there's more people on that payroll than there are living in the city of Bridgeport, yep. which kind of gives you a little perspective. Oh, so, so again, like how have you dealt with that kind of, again, each city kind of protecting themselves and I want the funds and I want the big project that's going to revolutionize the state? Yeah, so yeah, I mean, just to give a sense of scale, right, the average city in the United States is about 100 square miles. Bridgeport is 16, Hartford's 18, New Haven's 14, right? Really? I mean, 100 we, square miles? That's like that's like the miles. average? Yeah, because yeah, yeah. the, the metro areas, like they're, they're all they're their own neighborhoods, but they're also they're part of the city. Yeah, but like, if you even just look at the city of Atlanta or Jacksonville or Phoenix, and, and a big part of that is because, you know, these are newer cities mm-hmm. in relatively undeveloped areas. So as they grow out, they annex more land. As we grow out, we come up against municipalities that have existed like, no, for we hundreds are. of years. <laughs> exactly. Connecticut <laughs> is dense. Yes. We are dense, and I mean that in every sense of the word. Absolutely. <laughs> so with those 169, you know, I think we have some successes, um, but definitely still still a far way to go. Some, some of the successes um, a few years back with some federal funding as part of what was the National Sustainable Communities Partnership, we actually brought together... New Haven, Bridgeport, Norwalk, Stamford, with their peers in New York, New York City, um, Mount Vernon, New Rochelle, Yonkers, and we work together on a strategy to orient our growth around our rail system and really try and overcome what, you know, the, the rut that you can get stuck in, which is incentivizing companies to basically just move between municipalities without growing the region. Yeah, or states were fighting against New York and to go back and Absolutely. forth, back and forth. Oh, yeah. I mean, there was a the classic <laughs> example for, you know, there was a decade there where basically New York and New Jersey were just subsidizing the same companies to hop over the Hudson River and they'd go from lower Manhattan to Jersey City from lower Manhattan to Jersey City making use of the same workforce but not paying the state's taxes and so you know we we I think we have some good coalitions um, that exist some that are interstate but particularly within our state there's a um, a five-town initiative right now between Stamford and Fairfield and, and Greenwich and some of the other, fair, called the Fairfield Five, um, where they're working together and going down to New York to pitch entrepreneurs and companies and, and giving a unified voice and saying, you know, we're not asking you to come to our municipality. We're trying to present to you the array of opportunities mm-hmm. that exist in our region. But that governance structure of 169 makes it incredibly difficult. And, and I would argue one of the things that becomes most um, 
compromising is that it's it's impossible to expect 169 local governments to each have the breadth of expertise that is required to successfully compete in the 21st century. So yes. we're handicapping our own ability to interact with companies, to interact with our residents who are trying to be entrepreneurs and start businesses when we don't have the ability to create the whole toolkit. And so what we've done a lot at the state and, and the councils of government and other entities are, are sort of at the front line of this are trying to help the municipalities understand that by working together, they're going to grow the pie so that each of their slices mm-hmm. are larger. Yep. Now, when it comes to like infrastructure in Connecticut, er, in Connecticut is like, how do we compare to other states? You know, I, I assume like, I mean, the, the rail line that came in, the bus line, um, it's kind of interesting. They, uh, a lot of the innovation places stuff they talked about, like, we need this for millennials to come here. We need this for the professionals to come here. Do we need that? Um, and honestly, you know, so, so I'll leave you with that one, but I also have an, another question about your, your Fairfield Five, you know, kind of a thing, because I always feel like that side of the state is, they want to be New York, but they're in Connecticut. Um, but uh, so, so, so again, like, do we need, what infrastructure do we need? What, what have we done already? Um, and, and kind of the outlook on that. Yeah. So I think what's, what's really interesting about sort of the need for rail, I'll say, and the need for rapid transit is that it's just part of the full system that increases what I would say kind of broadly defined as resilience, Mm -hmm. right? So whether, you know, we can't say definitively whether, you know, the new population or the changing population is going to want this mode versus this other or economic development is going to be driven by this mode or this other. But we can say definitively that by having a robust transportation system that provides a full range of options from highway to rail to bus rapid transit to bike lanes and sidewalks, that that makes us resilient so that that as preferences change amongst residents and amongst businesses, we're best suited to meet that that demand, however it manifests itself. Um, but it's also resilience in terms of, I mean, you know, we're thinking now about the hurricane. For a couple of years, I was working on disaster response in Connecticut and resilience and, and community um, community resilience in the face of sea level rise and climate change. And you know, think about if we're dependent on a single highway, you know, evacuation or moving goods, you know, or getting to work, (laughs) work, exactly. Like any type of disaster, whether it's man-made or natural can cripple the whole system. So redundancy and, you know, multiple of options creates resilience from an economic development standpoint, disaster mitigation, et cetera. In terms of the Fairfield Five, you know, you know, I, I feel personally, even since I do live in Stanford, I, I happen to have grown up in Fairfield. Now I work in Hartford. I spent a lot of time in Bridgeport. You know, there is this dichotomy that exists in in almost every single state, right? I mean, it's it's amazing. You know, whether you're in New York or Massachusetts or even you know a state like Arizona, there's always that kind of upstate downstate dichotomy, <laughs> right? The metropolitan center versus kind of the rest. Connecticut's interesting because you have kind of a few different worlds, right? You have Metropolitan Hartford or Hartford Springfield, which which really does in some ways stand on its own, right? And I think a lot of the success that we've seen over the last couple of years with companies like Infosys and, and Seven Clouds, right? I mean, there is uh, an economy that exists in Hartford that is somewhat insulated from the larger megapolitan region from, from Boston to New York. Then you have aspects of Connecticut as you go further east that are more sort of part of metropolitan Boston, and then certainly aspects that are part of metropolitan New York. And I think we need to emphasize all of that, Mm -hmm. right? And there's 
there's a misperception, I think, on all fronts. Folks in the capital region maybe, you know, think Fairfield County is all gold-plated and everybody is, you know, super well-off. It isn't? It, it is not, believe it or not. You know, it's still incredibly diverse. Even communities like Greenwich have, you know, pockets of poverty yeah. and workforce housing. But then folks in, you know, Fairfield County kind of have this misperception of Hartford as, you know, failing or, you know, being a drag just, just on like the rest of the pit, state, like a money nothing, pit, yeah. when there's actually quite a lot of interesting stuff taking place there. So I think we need to kind of emphasize all that stuff. We need to approach Hartford as a sort of standalone metropolitan region of a couple million nearly a couple million people and what are places like um, Kansas City doing you know what are places like Salt Lake City doing and you know how can we approach Hartford in that way but we also need to strengthen our connections to the big metropolitan cores because you know the numbers are staggering in the New York metropolitan region the lion's share and I mean like 80 percent plus of new job creation in the New York metropolitan region over the last 15 years has been in Manhattan and Brooklyn, right? So you have to find a way to connect intimately to that job generator in this global gateway or else you're not gonna reap any of the benefits. So we need to simultaneously kind of find ways to grab on to Boston and New York, but do it in a way that it grows Connecticut and also recognize that Hartford Hartford Springfield is a you know successful metropolitan region with one of the most educated workforces in the country and one of the largest employment bases that you know can can thrive it's it's there's a few things I want to touch on there um, you know first off I, I agree with your assessment pretty much like I always kind of like in Connecticut to it's like a child caught between divorced parents. Mm -hmm. Like, we're constantly <laughs> being pulled between Boston and New York. And, like, everybody above, like, Middletown is a, a, a Patriots Red, fan. And Boston Red Sox fan. Yeah, Thank and you. a Red Sox fan. <laughs> yep. And everybody is south of that is a Giants or a uh, Yankees fan. Yeah. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's like, as soon as you cross that line, it just... With seven Mets fans sprinkled around. So. <laughs> we don't want to talk yeah. about them. Um, but, you know, also to the point where, you know, Hartford Springfield is kind of doing its own thing and starting to gain some ground, you know, it's interesting because Boston and New York are starting to price people out. They're yep. so expensive. It's a cool place. There's a lot of talent. There's a lot of advantages to being there. But a lot of people, and you know, Connecticut is not a cheap state, but everything's relative. And it's, it's so it's, <laughs> it's very funny. Like I'm starting to see more and more people. I'm coming across more businesses that are just like, you know, we were in New York or we looked at New York and it's like, we can be close to these places without having to deal with all that madness. And it's, it's still got a long ways to go, but it's you know Connecticut. There's a there's a there's a space there for Connecticut to absolutely somehow some way be the affordable alternative. <laughs> yeah, right. The affordable alternative to, to New York and Boston. No, it's absolutely right. I mean, you know, we looked at um, the IRS data a few years back at where sort of young professionals were going, and and there was this misperception. I think it was you know a bit more dominant 10, 15 years ago that people were going to Atlanta and Phoenix, kind of low cost. Mm -hmm. yep high-quality environment places, when the reality was the vast majority of our young people, either for college or post-college, were going to Brooklyn or Brookline, right? They were going to the inner ring suburbs or the outer boroughs of the two largest metropolitan centers. And we're never going to effectively compete with that because they're looking for not just access to employment opportunities, but access to entertainment, access to prospective spouses, right? We're never going to have the critical mass. They want the overload of just like everything. Yeah, they just, just want everything, everything right? Like at and, their fingertips. And they're willing to, to pay for that, right? Because that's, that's where they're at in that period of life. 
but then they kind of start coupling up, you start having kids, you're looking for maybe a little bit different sort of live-work balance, space access balance. And in that scenario, Connecticut looks phenomenal, right? If you could be within close proximity to Boston or New York and have you know some of the best um, producing theaters in the country, some of the best concert venues, have all that locally as a, an alternative, and have a little bit lower cost of living, great schools, a little bit more space, you know, that 30-something niche, you know, should be one that we can compete really well in. And as you guys know, you know, those are also kind of the people that are creating companies, that are creating jobs. That can buy the house. That can buy the house, right? So yeah. if you can land folks at that period in your in their life and in their yeah. kind of career, there's a lot of spin-off impacts for that that can be the foundation for prosperity. Yeah, and so I actually, um, I have a friend who was in New York. He was a, a recruiter. He uh, basically ha- was at a, at a company. He went through the IPO, did the whole thing, you know, there. And he literally just took a job in Stanford because he wants to move his family here. He wants to be able to save more money. He wants to do the whole thing. But also, again, does he want to have his kids grow up in New York versus, you know, Connecticut? So, I mean, he's from Connecticut. And I will have to say is that, Interesting, like IP, right? Let's talk about a little bit of IP because the whole point of IP was to attract people to move here and like actually buy houses and, and thing. And, and it's it's interesting because um, when in those groups they were all talking about the millennials, like we want more millennials. Let's do it for the millennials. But actually, you kind of want the people who just had their first kid or are in that kind of middle, kind of wrong executive or you know kind of thing to move here because they have the buying power for the house. They have the kids, and and let's be honest. Kids leaving the state or not enough kids in the state is crippling a lot of towns. Oh, absolutely. Because the school systems are going down. They're having to close school. I'm from Durham. We just closed one school last year, thinking about closing another one this year. And those have huge repercussions because the school boards are thinking five years out, 10 years out, right? Can we even get the population? So the other, you know, so, so I guess the question is that how, how can you attract those people? How can you get those people in here? I mean, is it, is it money? Is it, do we have to bring the companies here? Like that, that's always been like the problem, right? Yeah. I think, you know, part of it is just better conveying what you're getting for your investment and the value of what it means to be in Connecticut. And, you know, a perfect example is just the basic property tax. You know, we were talking about 169 municipalities, which is a lot, but our school systems, our police, our fire, our sewer are all pretty much coterminous with those 169. Yes. Right. So if you're in one of those towns, you get one bill and it covers all your services. Whereas you cross the border into New York or New Jersey, you can get like four, five, six def- different bills because you're in this town, this village, this county, a different sewer district, a different school district, and you could be paying double what we're paying here in Connecticut for a comparable house. So those are like taxes that they would get? Absolutely. And so, I mean, I can say definitively, um, you know, from the Fairfield County to Westchester County experience, the property tax bill is about half in Fairfield County. And the quality of schools is is certainly comparable and and great. And I think we just need to do a bit of a better job in articulating that, yeah, we are a high cost environment, right? That's not gonna change substantively, right? There are some things that we can do to control costs, certainly deal with some of our long-term obligations, but it's not gonna change substantively. But relative to our nearby competition, we are a much, much better value. In context. You have to put it in context. context. We're not not New Hampshire, but also we have a lot more to offer than New Hampshire. (laughs) Well, and I think that also goes back to the whole, so all these different towns and stuff. It can be really hard to put together a cohesive vision when everybody's vision is different. Mm -hmm. And, 
you know, like you said, we get that one tax bill that's covering, you know, the fire, the school, all that. And that's on one hand, that's good. But on the other hand, does every town need, right. You know what I mean? Do we have to have every, does every town have to have a fire station? Does every town have to have its own police? And they don't, you know, Durham has a resident state trooper or whatever. Yeah. But you know, when it comes to like the school system, yeah, they, they've been just shedding. Well, the school like, and the school is a great example because you are going to have over the coming years a juxtaposition of suburban and exurban municipalities losing student populations and potentially shutting down elementary schools that are contiguous to urban centers that are still growing and having to build more schools. And we're going to have to come to a point in the state where we say, are we really going to allow a building to be mothballed and several miles away construct a new building yep. because it happens to be on the other side of this artificial line that was created hundreds of years ago? Yeah, well, and the, yeah, again, the magnet school stuff, what's happening with crack aces, I mean, that, that kind of helps alleviate a little bit of it. Mm-hmm. But again, they're still, I mean, you, you have some kids from Hartford that are still traveling an hour and a half to school. I mean, I went to a magnet school when I was in Durham. It, I went to a Meriden school, and that literally still was an hour and a half commute, and it's only a... 10 minute drive, right. you know, so, um, there's, there's always the logisticals, you know, um, but, but that is, I, I think from a, it's interesting, small towns are dealing with different problems right now than the big cities are. Um, and I think that like my mother's in, in small town politics, um, and she just sees it. It's, it's, it's very hard to try and kind of, um, think about innovation, um, at a town level versus a city level. Um, yeah. also, as you probably know, dealing with townies versus people that live in cities, a little bit different perspective. Yeah. Um, most towns don't want new things to come in. They want to keep it uh, kind of rural. Granted, I mean, I'm one of those millennials that love, I, I love having a car. I don't use necessarily public transportation because I feel like my car is my, my, my piece of freedom. Like if I want to get out of a place, I can. Um, and I want to live in, in, the, in the country. So, um, so it's just been, it, it has been very interesting to see how different towns and cities react. Well, to I think that. it raises, you know, an opportunity to help, you know, if, but for some of the perverse incentives that the property tax system creates, where towns who kind of may not otherwise want growth feel that they need it for certain ways because yeah. they have to build that grand list, it does allow for an opportunity to link what's happening in the cities with, with the future of the towns in an interesting way where, you know, if a town is aging and there's likely to be a lot of home sales in coming years, well, the apartments in the city next door could be the pipeline of future home buyers right. that they absolutely need, right? If they're losing uh, home value because the office park that's in their community is having a hard time leasing up, well, it could be the older industrial building being repurposed as commercial loft space in the city next door that creates the jobs for the home buyers that will underpin value in their town. So it's, you know, I think I think we're at potentially an interesting moment where some of the smaller communities and some of the towns could realize that actually there is there's a, a reason to get behind what's happening in the cities because it's a way outside of our borders to achieve results that will benefit yeah, yeah. our properties. Get the overflow of cities, right? Absolutely. Like, like we yeah. want to take on the overflow of what's happening. Yeah. So, it, that, you know, I want to touch on real quick, you know, Eric and I grew up in the same town yep. and I had the complete opposite experience. <laughs> I went to CCSU. I was like, I want a city life and I don't want a big city life. You know, I didn't want to go to a New York or a Boston, but, you know, I ended up buying a house in New Britain because I wanted to be more involved in things. I want to be closer to things. I wanted to be able to do things, right? But, you know, going from Durham to New Britain, I get people asking why. You know, there's that rural-urban divide where, you know, there's like... 
And, you know, I'm going to be a little biased, but I definitely feel like, you know, the, the rural people are, can be very judgy and very dismissive yeah. of the cities. You know, Hartford gets a lot of flack. New Britain gets a lot of flack, even though New Britain's definitely on the upturn. I would say yeah. the same about Hartford. You know, yeah. Meriden has come a long way, but yeah, people, people stay, <laughs> yeah, and people, people still say, you know, oh, you're going to go get stabbed. Be careful. Yeah. You know, it, and it's ridiculous, but, you know... There's now, you know, there's opportunities happening in these cities that just couldn't happen in a place like Durham. So 100%. It's, and it's, there's really not a choice for these towns. It's kind of like, these towns got to start getting on board with this. And, you know, actually, one of the things we talked about before we started recording was the opportunity zones. Um, you're involved in that, right, David? Yes. And, you know, I, I know it's uh, not quite definitely a thing yet, and we could talk about that in a second, but, you know, projects like that where it's actually like, encouraging investment into cities potentially that's you got to follow the money right people will eventually follow the money if the, if the money is going into the cities like it's going to eventually just there's it, no choice it, unfortunately it's a trickle down right? yeah, <laughs> right? you're yeah. saying it's gonna go to the cities and it's gonna trickle to the suburbs right <laughs> but um what where is the status on those opportunities yeah, sure. actually i think new britain is potentially one yes yes yeah. so there are about 72 in the state i believe um, which were the maximum amount of census tracts that we could designate. Um, there were several hundred that were eligible based on their socioeconomic mm -hmm. characteristics. And then we designated the 72 that we thought were best aligned with our overall strategy of transit-oriented development, downtown revitalization, you know, neighborhood revitalization. And, you know, basically, you know, there's there's a lot of hope that opportunity zones are going to kind of be the difference between these long fallow sites being developed that, that otherwise wouldn't. And, you know, we try and caution folks a little bit that, you know, this is not going to make projects that didn't work before all of a sudden work. Yeah. But what it is, is a massive source of equity capital directed and focused at these geographies in a way that it never has been before. So all of a sudden you have thousands, probably, you know, hundreds of thousands of definitely millions of investors across the country looking to park their resources in a location. And they still are going to be looking for getting a return. Sure, yeah. They're still going to want to make that be a sound investment. But all of a sudden now you have the federal government saying, well, you might have been looking at everywhere. Now we want you to focus your attention on these neighborhoods. And for a place like Connecticut, that is really a tremendous opportunity because all of a sudden now the, the, the properties and the projects that we've been serving up in places like Hartford and Meriden and New Britain and, and New Haven, all of a sudden now have like an additional layer of um, incentive so that investors who might not have otherwise thought about that community will, will now look at it as a place mm -hmm. for investment. And it's kind of, so the way I've kind of seen it is that one, you're, you're right, these investors still want to return. Yeah. They're not impact investors. They're like just throwing it to a nonprofit kind of a thing. They are, it's almost trying to incentivize the real legitimate investors that are like, listen, I want to return my money. We have plenty of it. Like, let's make something happen. And it's it's almost like just de-risking it just a little bit, right? Correct. Because if if they if they're not getting the capital gains tax on it, well, they only need to make four or five percent, not the eight or nine percent, right? Or, or yeah, you know, that's absolutely so. right. You know, it, it what it does in my mind, it sort of shifts the risk profile of the investment community, where like now everyone can kind of maybe move one category yeah. riskier than they otherwise would have, which again, doesn't mean that everyone is still going to look favorably on that project in downtown Meriden, 
but more people will mm -hmm. than otherwise would have yeah. but for this incentive. Maybe the right person comes along. And, Absolutely. you know, there's so many empty factories and empty yeah. buildings. And again, it's getting better. But now, like you said, there's this additional incentive. There's reason where maybe someone who hadn't been considering a place like Meriden or Hartford or whatever now will look at them. And, you know, these things can snowball. Absolutely. Uh, one, one, one project can really transform a neighborhood. In, in New Britain, we had a brewery open up on Arch Street, which is kind of an economic dead zone. And now things are starting to happen there, slowly but surely. It's only been open a few months, but you could already start to see the changes here and there, you know? And so on a grander scale, that can, that can really make yeah. a difference. Yeah. And, one, and another thing, too, is that we had a, um, so I was at the Mid-State Chamber Board, and we had a, a group come in, and they had a project about an opportunity zone. At, crazy great project. They were going to put an amphitheater right downtown. It's going to be artist lofts. Awesome, right? That'd be like, you know, great. But the thing was that um, when they were talking about the, the, the stack of capital that they would need, Opportunity Zone was still only about 4 or 5%. Correct. Like, it was not the whole thing of it. It's, only, it's, it's almost one of those things where we'll just push it over a little bit, or we'll get the last piece of financing for some of these projects where, as you know, they take years, Correct. right? So you're building the capital stack, building it, building it, and then Opportunity Zone just may be, like, the one cherry on top that just makes the project happen. Right, and where we can be most successful is by, you know, demonstrating whether it's through our community banks or our lending institutions and the state uh, programs, whether it be brownfield money or other infrastructure money or housing support money, how we're bringing other tools to bear so that the investors, the equity investors through Opportunity Zones see all those other people at the table, which again, just kind of further reduces their yeah. risk so that they can kind of slide in in that niche level and layer in the capital stack. Um, in projects that they might not have otherwise looked at. Very nice, very nice. So, um, so you know, knowing the opportunity zones are coming down the pipeline, you know, all this stuff is happening with the uh, with the state. What would your uh, piece of advice be for entrepreneurs trying to work with the DCD, trying to get some of these bigger projects uh, and so forth? Yeah, I think first and foremost, just reach out. You know, mm -hmm. we I think we're very responsive. Um, we have a good, robust team of professionals kind of across the gamut from infrastructure to small business development to, to large corporate support. And, you know, we need to know that you're out there, right? We need to know what you're working on so that we can kind of tailor our response and our mm -hmm. support to your to your needs. Um, but if we don't know you're there, we can't help you. And, you know, don't hesitate to reach out, even if you've never interacted with the state before or kind of you have this fear that working with the state is going to make the project more difficult. Like, reach out, tell us what you're working on, tell us what your needs are. And, you know, maybe we're a good fit or maybe we can connect you with others in the lending community who would be a better fit. Um, but, you know, we just want to know who's out there and how we can help um, because we're invested in the ecosystem of, of entrepreneurship and innovation and business development across the state. Very cool. So is there a contact uh, they can hit you up? I mean, I mean, we have so many listeners that you may get bombarded by emails. Yeah, but, no, uh, no, no worries. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I mean, just the phone number's uh, fine. You know, 860-500-2340 and we'll direct you to the right person. Very nice. Thank you, David, for joining us. Absolutely. Yeah, thank Thanks you very for much for having David. me. Thank you for listening to CT Startup. More Connecticut startup news, information, and events can be found at ctstartup.com. The weekly episodes of this podcast can be downloaded from iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and ctstartup.com. We would like to thank both Sublime Exposure Online and Mirtha Kalina for providing resources and space to CT Startup, which make the show possible. See you next week.